this podcast contains graphic content and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Katie. And you're listening to Murder, Mayhem, and and Merlot. feeling about today's episode it's gonna be a hard one it is and i'm at peace with it yeah but um just making sure you're emotionally ready yeah i am i it's a it's a story that i've wanted to tell for a long time Mm -hmm. and it's just probably the hardest story that you've had to share it is because it's personal Mm -hmm. today's episode will be the hardest for me to do because today like i said today it's personal it's so personal that i briefly considered letting katie tell you this story So you could get kind of an outside perspective, even though after the parole hearing that we went to, I don't know if it'd be so much outside perspective at this point. Katie's pretty in it, but, but no, I need to tell you this story. Mm -hmm. The case I have for you today is about my own flesh and blood. It's about a girl I never got to meet because she died 13 years before I was born, but whose name I have always known. It's a name that my mom couldn't say without tearing up. That name is Mary Jones, my cousin, and this is her story. Mary Jones was born on February 25th, 1964. Mary had long, beautiful red hair. She did. Mm -hmm. She had really pretty hair. In fact, that's probably one of the reasons my son has brought red hair, Mm -hmm. because it runs in the family. My cousin Patty described Mary as being just a sweet and humble girl. She was considered the peacemaker among her brothers and sisters. She came from a big family, and they were always together. That included my mom and the rest of her cousins. Mary and her family lived in Morristown, Tennessee in 1980. Morristown is just a quaint, quiet town nestled in the Appalachia. Not somewhere you would think a gruesome attack on two teenage girls would happen. On June 20th, 1980, 33-year-old Jerry Barnyard was enjoying a nice summer day on his porch. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when Jerry heard a scream coming from the woods surrounding his property. He grabbed his binoculars and started searching for the source. I mean, could you just imagine, like, just sitting on your porch and hearing, like, a scream? No, I would freak out. Exactly. (laughs) Like, I'd be like, okay, deuces. I would freak out. Yeah. Stumbling out of the tree line was a girl that looked to be about high school age. She was badly injured and had a pair of handcuffs dangling from her wrist. Jerry immediately called over to a neighbor for help and grabbed his rifle. When he approached the girl, she immediately fell to the ground, not able to go on any longer. She was bleeding profusely. Jerry scooped the girl up into his arms and started heading back towards his house. She told him her name was Mitzi and that and that a man had tried to kill her. But that wasn't all. She told Jerry that her friend Mary was still in the woods with their attacker. Police and paramedics arrived. Mitzi was rushed to the hospital, literally on the brink of death. The police and Jerry made their way into the woods, not knowing what they were going to face or who would be out there, but knowing there was another girl who needed help. 
when they eventually find Mary, it's too late. Mary was found dead with her attacker nowhere in sight. Mary was found nude with what appeared to be multiple stab wounds. Autopsy later confirmed that Mary had suffered four stab wounds, one that punctured her liver, another one that went into her right lung, and another one that went into the middle of her back. The fourth one went into her jugular. The knife had been twisted, severing her carotid artery. It was also clear that Mary had been raped and sodomized. Police were able to recover a small amount of DNA from the assault. And while DNA has been amazing in solving many crimes and getting justice for many families, this was before DNA technology. So they saved it, but it wasn't going to be much help at that point in time. They did collect a single piece of fabric on a nearby fence. It looked like a piece of fabric that would come off of a pair of pants. It was because of that piece of fabric and where Mary's body was found, they had a pretty solid idea of how the attack went down for Mary. Police believed that when the attacker took off Mary's shorts, she was able to get away. She was able to get over a fence and started running towards a roadway. Mm -hmm. However, the man chased her and caught his pants on the fence. He caught up to her, stabbed her in the back, turned her around, and then stabbed her in the jugular. It was then that they think he proceeded to rape and defile Mary. So they had an idea of what Mary's final moments were like. And it was gut-wrenching to think that she was so close Mm -hmm. to the roadway, which meant she was probably close to being saved. And she may have just felt that relief, like she sees the roadway and she's Mm -hmm. almost there. And and then then just, boom, he grabs her. Yeah, he catches up to her. They didn't have a murder weapon, no witnesses. They didn't have much to go on. The police knew finding the perpetrator would be difficult. They were relying on a 15-year-old girl who was fighting for her life at the hospital to survive. To survive the surgery and tell them what they needed to know to get this monster off the streets. While they waited to hear an update on Mitzi, the police combed through the area, talked to locals, chasing down any lead. Thankfully, Mitzi did survive surgery. Mitzi had lost a lot of blood and had been through a very traumatic experience. Our brains, in the event of something traumatic, will try to protect itself. And in doing that, can affect your memory. Mm -hmm. And even coming out of surgery, that can make you dazed and confused. Right. But Mitzi had remembered everything, and she was ready to talk. When police arrived, she was able to tell them about a man who they thought had good intentions lured them into a trap. It had been a typical summer day in 1980 for best friends Mary Jones, who was 16, and Mitzi Holt Sizemore, who was 15. They were on their way to Cherokee Park, walking along a road. A man pulls over in a yellow truck and says he's an off-duty cop. He showed the girls a badge and he had a gun on his hip. He said he was looking for a couple of runaways. He gave them the names and asked if they could help him locate them. Mm -hmm. Mitzi and Mary went to school with the two runaways, but explained to the off-duty cop that they didn't know where they were and had not spoken to them. Mm -hmm. The cop drove away, and Mary and Mitzi didn't really think anything else about it. They proceeded to head into Cherokee Park. After a few hours of hanging out in the park, enjoying the sunny day, they start to make their way back home. It was then that they were approached by the same cop in the same yellow pickup. The cop explains to them that he located the runaways, He said they were camped out in the woods and asked if the girls would help him talk them into coming out. The two girls had no reason to believe this man wasn't who he said he was. Mm -hmm. He had the badge. He had the gun. He was talking about real people, people the girls knew. On top of all that, the girls were brought up to listen and respect law enforcement. Mm -hmm. 
So, of course, the girls climbed into his truck and they drove away. Right. The supposed off-duty police officer drives a few miles before pulling over. He asked the girls to come with him one at a time. He didn't want to spook or overwhelm the runaways and thought it was best if they talked to them individually. He takes Mitzi with him first. They walk a little ways and come across a fence. The man holds down the fence so Mitzi could climb over it. Once over the fence is when Mitzi realizes her life was in grave danger. It was at that moment the man grabs a hold of Mitzi. Mitzi's instincts kick in and she immediately goes into fight mode. She claws at his face. She hits him repeatedly. She fought and she fought hard. But this was a 15-year-old girl and her attacker was bigger and stronger. Mm -hmm. Mitzi's attacker pulls out a pair of handcuffs and handcuffed her left wrist. He takes her to the ground and jumps on top of her. He then puts a gun to her head. He tells her not to scream and that he wouldn't hurt her. But Mitzi doesn't listen. She screams, run Mary, go get help. Hoping Mary would hear her. Despite telling Mitzi he wouldn't hurt her, he then proceeds to unbutton and unzip Mitzi's shorts. He then took a knife and sliced Mitzi's throat. Mitzi told herself to pretend like she was choking on her own blood, to pretend that she was dying, that she was dead. Mm -hmm. Which was pretty believable, considering she was bleeding. Mm -hmm. He tells her, you've had it, and then stabs her in the chest, collapsing one of her lungs. All of a sudden, the man hears a noise and realizes Mary had been watching. He gets up to chase after Mary, but before he runs off, he handcuffs Mitzi's arms around a tree. Mitzi is losing blood and losing it fast, and she knew she had to fight. She tried desperately to get her left wrist out of the handcuff, but it was just too tight. She then tried her right. She was working and working it, trying to get loose, all the while Mary is screaming. Mitzi finally gets free and takes off for help. She's stumbling and is having trouble staying conscious. She hears someone walk up to her, and thinking it is yet again her attacker, falls to the ground. Only it wasn't. It was Jerry Barnyard who carried her to safety. Mitzi described her attacker as being medium build with strawberry blonde hair. And something that really stood out to her was that his eyes were like bugged out of his head. Mm -hmm. Like really just bugged out. Mm -hmm. It's what Mitzi remembers the most. She also described the yellow pickup, which had fishing rods in the back. Mitzi had given the police a lot to go off of, but the most chilling thought was that not only was a killer loose, one that was most likely a member of the community, but also had some sort of law enforcement training. He at least knew enough to impersonate one. Mm -hmm. Police needed to find him before he tricked someone else and had his next victim. The fear in the community was palpable. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, a crime like this just doesn't happen in Morristown. Mm -hmm. No teenage girl was safe, and they knew they had a true monster among them. Police were able to come up with a composite sketch pretty early on by having Mitzi's detailed description. Mm -hmm. A local radio station continuously played the description the police gave, and they played it on a loop. Like, that's all they played. Right. So there was no confusion as to who locals should be keeping an eye out for. Tips started pouring in, and one tip in particular was critical. You know how the killer used the excuse about the runaways to lure the girls and used actual names? Mm -hmm. Well, that wasn't bullshit. Those two kids had actually run away, but police located them and didn't waste any time questioning them. Mm -hmm. They asked if they had talked to anyone that matched the description Mitzi gave, and wouldn't you know it, there was. Two, actually, but only one with a yellow pickup. It was a name that never even crossed police's radar. 
This man's name was Randy May. Randy worked at a local gas station, and when investigators took a look into Randy's background, they discovered that he applied to a bunch of law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. And not only that, was enrolled at the local community college studying criminal justice. They always want to be in something that they can be involved in it with. Yeah. Always. So obviously, they want to speak to this guy. When they get to Randy's trailer that he shared with his wife, he wasn't home, but was in fact at work. Police started to pull away from the trailer, heading towards a gas station Randy worked at. But before they left, you know what they spot? The yellow pickup. A yellow pickup. When they get to the gas station, the first thing police notice when seeing Randy is his strawberry blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Randy acts like he's just shooting the shit with these cops. It's like he truly thought he was one of them. When Detective Coffey asks him where he was the morning of June 20th, Randy said he had been fishing in the area when the girls were approached, but says he never crossed paths with them. See, Randy says he had been dealing with what he believed to be theft. He says when he parked his truck, he left the keys in it and went to fish. It wasn't for several hours and after a good washing of his truck that he realizes someone had been in it. He said that because the thief returned the truck, he didn't realize it had been stolen until after he washed it. He was also missing some items. And yes, this is going exactly where you think it is. Mm -hmm. He was missing his knife along with a few other things. Let me guess, handcuffs too. Well, that'll come up later. Mm. <laughs> Likely story. Yeah. He said he went down to the police station to report the theft. Only, police have no record of such report. Did he think that he could just say that and they wouldn't have had a record of that? Apparently. Fucking idiot. Randy also couldn't give a name of the police officer that he talked to at the police station. Police knew his story was phony, as all get out. Randy was trying to insinuate that while he was fishing, someone stole his truck, killed those girls, and then returned it. <laughs> I know. Really? I know. I know. Nobody's going to steal a car and then give it back the same day. Yeah, it's, it's He's wild. so fucking for real. It was just too convenient. Police were pretty convinced they had their guy, but didn't have enough evidence to hold him. They did ask Randy if they could take a look inside of his house, and he happily agreed. When at Randy's residence, they don't notice much, except they do find an empty handcuff case mm. and collect it for evidence. Police ask him if he has a pistol. Randy, without hesitation, pulled out a 45 caliber pistol, and it matched the description Mitzi gave of the gun that was pointed to her head. You know for the police that it had to be so hard not to arrest him on the spot. I mean, he's your guy. Mm -hmm. This is the monster that had attacked two innocent girls, but they couldn't let on that they were convinced it was him. Mm -hmm. They had to pretend like they were convinced of Randy's story, that he was believable. Right, because they don't want him to bolt. Yes. Once back at the station, the police questioned Randy about the empty handcuff case, but of course he had an explanation. He easily explained that away as well. He's got an excuse for everything. Yeah. Crazy. Randy stated that those handcuffs were also in his truck. So the person who stole his truck must have stolen those too, along with his knife. For a man that is studying criminal justice. He's real stupid. He's real fucking dumb. He yeah. knows not shit about it. No. Thank God, though. Yeah. Thank God he's <laughs> an absolute fucking idiot. Truly. Police were over this game Randy was playing. It was time to turn up the heat, and after an intense line of questioning, Randy's story begins to change. 
shocking, like they always do. Mm-hmm. Randy eventually admits that he saw Mary and Mitzi walking along the road. That's a drastic change. Yeah, sure is. He admits that he pretended to be a police officer. He said he used the runaway story because it would be convincing. But what was the motive? Obviously, this was premeditated. But why them and why then? Randy starts to describe Mary's red hair and how cute Mitzi was. Ugh. I know. I know. That's stomach turning. By how much he was talking about Mitzi, it was clear that she had been the main target. Mm. He admitted that the purpose of taking Mitzi into those woods was to sexually assault her. There was something missing from Randy's confession, and that was actually stabbing the girls. He remembers grabbing Mitzi and handcuffing Mitzi. He remembers Mary Jones being in the woods. He remembers cleaning off his knife. But he says he doesn't remember actually stabbing either girl. That shit gets on my nerves. Mm-hmm. They're that with every monster that does this to somebody and they go, I blacked out. Oh my God, that drives me up the fucking wall. Mm-hmm. No, you didn't. No, you fucking did not. You knew exactly what you, you were just doing. Don't, you just think that that would be the most incriminating thing, so you don't fucking say it. Yeah. That drives me insane. Randy agrees to take them back to his house and to where he hid the knife, the handcuff keys, and the badge holder. Police had more than enough to arrest and charge Randy. Police believed that they had a very solid case. Mm-hmm. But wanted to take it a step further. They put Randy in a lineup and brought Mitzi in. And I just want to say, like, Mitzi is so brave for everything that she did and went through and what she was able to tell. And what she still does and goes through. Yes. But the fact that she had to go to that lineup not too long after she was attacked and getting out of the hospital and having to look him in his face again. Just the emotions, Mm -hmm. you know. But from meeting her and... You know, we've only met her in person one time. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have it any other way. Right. She wanted to get his ass. Yes. And in another act of bravery, Mitzi looked the man that attacked her and murdered her best friend in the face and was able to, without question or second thought, was able to point to Randy May. Randy pled guilty in order to avoid the death penalty, so it didn't go to trial. He was sentenced to life in prison with 30 years in max without the possibility of parole. But this is where the story should have ended. Mm -hmm. I would be happy to tell you that while my cousins have been traumatized by what happened and that they were left in peace to mourn, I wish I could tell you that. I really do. But no. Because of Tennessee's law, Randy was able to take classes and earn credits for those classes. He also earned credits for good behavior. And the reward? Being able to possibly get parole. He also didn't spend hardly any time in max security. Mm-mm. I believe it was less than a year. Mm-hmm. I think that's what what Patty said. I think she said it was 11 less, months. Yeah. Just six years into Randy's sentence, he had a chance at being let out of prison. Six years. Yep. Randy has been up for parole eight times since being incarcerated. This last time being in August of this year. And Katie and I will talk more on that in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But my family and Mitzi has had to go sit in a parole hearing eight times with Randy. They've had to sit in the same room with him every four years, literally just an arm's length away, and listen to him and how he's a changed man, how he says he's a changed man, and listen to his pathetic excuses for why he did what he did. And, you know, even a couple of times they've had to go yearly. Mm -hmm. 
and do this. And pathetic is the best word that we have in the English mm-hmm. language to describe his excuses. But if yeah. there was a harsher word, it's mm-hmm. I, it was yeah. un, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Thankfully, though, all eight times he has been denied. But that could change. Randy could get out one day if he doesn't die in prison first. Fingers crossed. But I was literally just about to say that. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Fingers crossed. You took it right out of my mouth. <laughs> Randy is 66 years old now and will be in his 70s when he is up for parole again. But I don't care how old Randy gets. He will always be a danger to society. And every year that Randy gets older is a year Mary didn't get. Mm-hmm. I watched Investigation Discoveries. Paul's on on the case. You know, her episode about this. Mm-hmm. Other than what I already knew, it was where I got a lot of my information. Mm -hmm. I learned some things I never knew. And that episode is intriguing. And you can hear Mitzi describing her own words, what happened that day. Mm -hmm. So I encourage everyone to go watch it. And I also learned things when we went to the parole hearing in August. My cousin Patty, Mary's sister, graciously let Katie and I sit in on the parole hearing with her and the rest of the family. And... It was an experience I'll never forget, truly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to talk about what you thought. Um, it, it is a very unforgettable experience. I mean, we can just start from the beginning. So we went on August 24th and, you know, it was a, it was a hot day. It was, we it was hot. It was hot. You know, he's, he's in Bledsoe County. Um, so he's just a few hours away. Yeah. Um, Bledsoe County, Tennessee. And... The whole thing was an experience. The whole entire thing was an experience. And we're going to have some lighthearted commentary in just a minute. Because we, there was some situations that it was like. I just, oh my God. So we get there, you know, we're pulling up and completely lose signal. Thankfully, my GPS still got us there. We really pulled up to, uh, it's a level three prison. So technically level three and level four are um, considered maximum security. Yes. Um, I think that Bledsoe County, from what I looked up before we went, Bledsoe County is a level three. Mm-hmm. They do have a maximum security unit. Um, Where Randy was supposed to serve right, most of his sentence. But he doesn't. No. <laughs> um, but it's not all maximum security. Like, I believe level fours are all maximum security. Mm-hmm. Level three has a unit or a couple units, but he's not in it. Right. So we pull in and Kayla really looks at me and says, I don't have any signal. I said, we're at a prison. Did you think that you were going to have signal? Because I don't know why you thought that. I realized it what, coming in to like driving mm-hmm. into the facility, but it was like shoddy and it was like going in and out. But then mm-hmm. when we go to the prison, we're actually in the parking lot. It completely, I lose it. Right. And I'm like freaking out because I have to tell Patty, that my she's cousin, here. that I was, that There's, we were there. We have no communication with Patty anymore. Yeah. And so I see Patty in the parking lot. And I, I like sling my door open and leave I, it open, by the way, car's still running. I'm yeah. inside the car. Yes. And I like run to Patty, just like, Hey, I'm here. She you literally know? just takes off running through the parking lot and I'm sitting there and I'll be damned if I'm just sitting there chilling. And plus I just woke up. Okay. I she had, did. I she me a slept. Let, you Listen, know, bless her heart. She, when I get in a car, I just sleep. So I wait, like she wakes me up the second that we're pulling in. Then she does all this shit in the parking lot. And I'll be damned if I don't look over. And there's 12 of these motherfuckers just walking through the parking lot, unattended. Ain't nobody with them. Prisoners she's talking about. Prisoners. (laughs) They they got their little blue outfits on, their little white Crocs. And they're just walking through the parking lot. There's no guard with them. With their coffee? Yeah, they had coffee. Like, 
they're just walking through the damn parking lot, visitor parking lot, and they walk right past the car. I said, they can just get in and leave. <laughs> because let me tell you something else. They got that little tower that sits at the front. Not a fucking soul up there. Nobody no. was upstairs. And and there was just two of them motherfuckers in the parking lot. Yes. I'm like, there's 12 of them. They can just leave. They can just get in this car right now, bitch in tow, and leave. <laughs> they can just go. Bitch in tow. Get their little coffee cup, put it in a cup holder, and then just leave. Yeah. And I get back in the car. And she looks at me and goes, Kayla, no, you just didn't. I, like, she was ready to sacrifice my ass. Leave me in a car, door open, car, car running. running, and here comes a bunch of prisoners just walking past me. And I said, there's a bitch in this car. It's me. I'm bitch. I was like, they could have just taken me and left. So, yeah, that that was our first first experience while there and they then, just walk across in front of cars driving through and they just like wave like thanks for letting me cross like yeah and then we go to another building to get like searched and to go through metal detectors and all that and an x-ray machine yeah like it was a whole thing a whole setup and so we drive to the main building and katie goes first through the metal detector and through all the little machines yeah they you have. go through like it's like an airport like you take your you know all extra stuff off like shoes and all that good stuff you put them in a little bin they send it through like a machine then you go through like an x-ray machine then you go through a metal detector and what is that last little thing so they have it at saint jude too like before they take the kids it's like a magnet detector or yeah something. like the, before they take the kids back for their mri and whoever goes back with them it's just this little thing that you just spin under and it's supposed to detect any metal you just do a little twirl you do a little twirl so I go through, everything's fine. And then we go into a room and there is a really, really big dickhead sitting behind a desk. And he <laughs> asks you, this guy was a fucking asshole. Yeah. And he asks you if you're there for or or your opposition. And I was like, opposition, I guess. And he was like, well, who are you here for? And I was like, for Mary Jones case. And he was like, he just looks down at this little paper and he looks back up and he goes, well, that's not a prisoner's name, is it? And I was like, no. He said, prisoner's name. And I was like, damn. <laughs> and then I was like, Randy May. Blech. But, and he was like, there you go, little girl. And I was like, motherfucker. Why are you going to be rude to people that are here for something really difficult? Like, why? I mean, I mean, really. Nobody made you take this fucking job. Anyway. So, Katie gets her little slip of paper that says opposition. You get a little hall pass for the prison you that do. you have to carry with you. And she goes, sit down. It's my turn. And an invisible number. Yeah. And you get, like, a stamp that only is shown under black lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, for all, Katie and I know, we still have that on us. Like, Yeah. Like, I, 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 been you do about, become a number. You do. And um, so it's my turn and things are going great. I go in the little x-ray machine. You know, it takes you back and forth, back and forth. And I get out and I go through the metal detector. And I just keep setting that bitch off over and over again. I'm setting it off. Taking different things out. Her rings, her nose ring, her glasses. Like, I'm like trying. Yeah, I'm like, I literally, I promise you, I don't have anything on me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, could it be the wire in my bra? And they're like, no, 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 that should not, that should not set it off. And I was like, well, if it's not the wire in my bra, I really don't know. I've taken out my nose And ring. they told you that it was in the upper part of your body? Yeah. And so I'm like, it has to be my, my the wire in my bra. Because she's taken everything else off of this. My so nose she's ring, gonna... my wedding rings, my glasses. And then I like point to the permanent retainer in my mouth. And I'm like, 
And I have one of those, so it couldn't be that. I'm like, Like, is it this? You know? Like, and they're like, no, it wouldn't be that. And so I'm just like, they like, just go have a seat. And so I'm like sitting in a seat of shame. And I'm sitting there next to Patty. And me and Patty are just conversing. And Patty was like, you know, she's trying to crack a joke. Like, she's having, this is rough for Mm -hmm. her. So I get it. She's trying to crack a little joke. And she said, wouldn't it be something if they did a cavity surge on Caitlin? <laughs> and then her just sitting there. I mean, Kayla looks like she's getting punished over there. I she's do. In a little chair. <laughs> and she's just like, she's got her little legs just to swing in. And she's just sitting there by her lonesome. And Patty's over here just cracking jokes about yeah. her getting a cavity surge. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm just like racking my brain. Like for what, even though I know damn well, I don't have anything else on me. And, you know, so you start questioning yourself. Does like my hair bow have metal in it? Or, you know, like I'm just, I just keep thinking. And this woman comes up to me. She had went in after me and she's like, you look real serious right now. And I was like, well, ma'am, I'm in a real serious situation right now. Like, (laughs) so yeah, eventually the, um, one of the cops come up to me and she hands me a staple remover and she goes, we think it's your bra. Okay. And she's like, so you want to go into the bathroom and, you know, try to rip them out, get it out. And I was like, can I just like not wear one? And she said, no. And I was like, fair. And so, <laughs> and so I, I go into the bathroom, Katie walks in and she's like, what is going on? And I was like, Patty, Patty was like, go, go. They sent her. She's like, she's in the bathroom. Go see what's going on. Go see what's going on. I was like, okay. Yeah. And so I was like, Katie, I have to take the wire out of my, out of my bra. It's my favorite bra. Like I walk in and she's standing in the back stall, like the handicap stall, the biggest one. She's standing there just with her bra on her fingers, like just dangling it. And I was like, the fuck are you doing? Yeah. So Katie and I, after about what? 15 minutes. I get them bitches out. She does. And Kayla, Kayla's just emotional because she she was like, it's my favorite bra. <laughs> I was but like, I was why like, did you wear a wire bra to a prison? I just didn't think about it. And and But also, I was just like, I was just worried I wasn't going to be able to go to the parole hearing. Because they told her, they were like, if you can't go through the metal detector without it going off, you can't go in. Yeah. And so I was like, just getting emotional over not being able to to go. So I, I rip them bitches out. She does. I had to, I had to literally like... Just rip the bottom of this these two cups on her bra to shreds. God yeah. love their little hearts. Yep. And so we get them out, and I go through the metal detector again, and it works. Huggy dory. I go through just fine, and I get my little opposition paper, and and um. Then we get bus to another back to the same building that we pulled in at originally. Yeah, like across the street from it, and um. That was that we had to go through another metal detector. I start sweating again, like oh my god, like. And then you get a pat down. Yeah, you get a pat down then. And then they take everyone that's in opposition into this room with your, you know, with all of you, the whole group, and you sign your name and how you knew or like how you were related to Mary or why you were there. And then you go into the room. And we were the first case of the day. Yeah. You go into the room and they... um, They brought opposition in first. There was 18 of us in opposition. 17. 17. 17. There was 17 of us in opposition. Mm -hmm. And then there were three that showed up for it. And they bring them in after you. Mm Mm-hmm. There's three in support of him. And um, then, like, all these guards just come in dressed like him possible. They do. I'm talking green pants. Army green. Army green. And black shirts. And black gloves. And black gloves. I mean, no kidding. Like, they're dressed like him possible. Yeah. They really are. Like, call me, beat me. That's what and they were like, saying. And we're all just sitting there. And then, like, ten of them just come in. Yeah. And, and the, news, then, the news was there. And then he comes. And then he comes in. And then they have two more with him. And then one guy behind him. Mm-hmm. And w- there was one behind us. Mm-hmm. And so 
the case is always brought before the parole board, but they just have one representative of the board overseeing the hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the head of the board. Well, he's actually not head. Of, Zane Duncan is a head of the oh, board. Oh, was he not? No. He's just a member of the board who was overseeing oh, okay. the hearing. At least that's what I saw on Tennessee.gov. Okay. He's not the chairman. Okay. Um, but Zane Duncan, who is a member of the parole board, resided over Randy's parole hearing. Um, and yeah, so that was an emotional experience. Um, they let, they go over like the rules. They let him speak first. So he tells his story first. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, he looks the damn part. Oh yeah, he's, he's cre- he looks creepy as fuck. He's creepy. Um, but he he kind of talks about um how he's changed and all that, and then they let um support talk first. And the people that were in support of Randy that day, I'm not sure of their names, but it was a man that he had been incarcerated with for nine years. For nine years, and then a woman that was with him. She never spoke. Yeah, I think it was like his girlfriend or, or something. I don't know. And then another woman who. Her husband is in there with him now. Yeah, who's incarcerated with Randy now. And both the man and the woman spoke um, and just talked about how Randy was a great man. A great man and like the peacekeeper. And a godly man. Yeah, and he like read his Bible every morning. Like, who gives a fuck? But um, he and, and just like how he essentially he was a changed man and he deserved to be out. Mm-hmm. Um. And then it was opposition's turn and Mitzi got up there and she told her story again. And and there was not like on our side, at least there's not a dry eye after she speaks. Mm-mm. No, I, I I lose it. Katie loses it. Like, yeah. every, because it's it's just hard to hear. And, and to stand there and look at her and mm-hmm. watch her tell this over and over again. Know that she has to do this. Mm hmm. At least every four years. Arms length away, really, from Randy. Mm -hmm. And she looks at him the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she does. He doesn't look at her. I mean, truly, he picked the wrong fucking one. Yeah. And then the detective who worked on the case. um, He was a crime tech at the time. But he ended up being, he was the sheriff of Morristown for a while. Yes. And he spoke. And he made a good point that I want to highlight in, in what he, when he was talking about randy he said that you know he says that randy came from california Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't surprise him if randy had other victims and i've always thought that i've it just it's too calculated Mm -hmm. the pretending of being a police officer you know you know he cased that area before taking the girls Mm -hmm. to know where he he, knew where to take them where to take them where he wouldn't be seen the the handcuffs, the badge, it kind of reminded me of Golden State Killer, where he was a police officer, mm-hmm. and they knew whoever that killer was had law enforcement training, mm-hmm. and so it wouldn't surprise me if Randy had other victims. No, and the fact that and if and if he doesn't, he would have. Yeah, that that the man that said this was a crime scene technician for years. Mm-hmm. He worked in the police department all his life, and then was the sheriff of. The police department in Morristown in for Hamlin years County, yeah. until he retired. Like he's worked in law enforcement all his life. He was a crime scene technician when he started out. He's seen this stuff. He's worked these cases. So for him to have that opinion is very moving mm-hmm. in thinking that, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. it is so. And especially 
when you say it's too calculated, especially after we heard his excuses. Absolutely. Yeah. He tried and I'm going to gonna play, go over those. Yeah. Like he tried to play this off like this was like a split moment emotional murder. Like mm-hmm. he just. It was just a. Like he snapped. Yeah. And that's just not what that's just not what happens in a rage murder. No. That's not it. He, you don't plan in a rage murder. You just do stuff. He was hunting that day. He was. He was on the hunt that day, and it was calculated. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Mary and Mitzi were just in the wrong place at the mm-hmm. wrong time. Well, and I say that, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he had been stalking them. No, because he knew the kids that the runaways, and so, he knew that they knew them. Yeah, and so, Mitzi said that when she spoke. Yeah, she said he knew. I, that we knew those and kids. And she, she was like, how would he know? How yeah. did he know that we knew them? Mm-hmm. And we've never met this man before. How did he know that? Yeah. And that's a damn good question. It really is. One that she'll probably never have answered, but it is a good one. Mm-hmm. And it's scary. And that's just one of the many reasons why Randy does not need to be out. Not just because, you know, he doesn't deserve it, but because this is a dangerous man. Mm-hmm. A calculated killer. Mm-hmm. When asked why he did what he did. This is the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Truly. Randy said that the reason he attacked the girls that day was because it was hot and he had had a fight with his wife that day. And, you know, he worked at that gas station and people just kept complaining about gas prices and it just worked him up. And I'm like, bro, gas prices today, you wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah, you don't need to come out. It's hot <laughs> as hell out here. Mm-hmm. We struggling. Gas the, the, is- the earth is on is, is burning. Yeah. Okay. Okay, people in Arizona, if you stand on the asphalt in Arizona, it will melt the tread off the bottom of your shoes if you stand there longer. Yeah, like okay, it, it's, it's hot, hot out. It's hot. Gas prices, they ain't low. Nope. They ain't low. It's a bit, they were a lot higher than in the 80s, I'll tell you that yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. So, and then he also was talking about how he just gotten out of the military and he was trying to adjust to real life. Yeah, that so too. So, you, you ticked all the boxes, my guy. You're going to be getting, you want to try to get out of prison, you're going to have to adjust to real life like you were back then. Mm-hmm. Gas prices are high. It's even hotter now. Thank you, global warming. So it's even fucking hotter now, my guy. Mm -hmm. And you think people aren't going to be blessing you out when they see you on the fucking street? Because you got another damn thing coming. Oh, So you're talking about people arguing with you? Motherfucker, you got an army. Mm -hmm. Which he'd be lucky to make it out alive. Yeah. But. Yep. And Zane Duncan, who was overseeing the hearing, Mm -hmm. basically said what we said. And not so, in in like, you know, more professional terms. But still Um, smart ass. But still, he's like, I've been on the board for many years and gas prices being a motive was a first for him he was like i've heard everything under the sun that you could think of for why somebody stole something killed somebody robbed someplace yeah. he said and i have never <laughs> never heard, heard of gas somebody prices. say gas prices before yeah and he said he was like if that was your issue and that's what made you snap you don't need to be out now no where's the law there ain't one there ain't my cousin patty also got up there and she wasn't going to speak originally either. And I think what got her to speak was that the guy who stood up and spoke for Randy had talked about how they just played ball together. And, and he said, you all don't know him like I do. You got to know him out on the ball field. Yeah. And so that made Patty get up and go speak. And she talked about how Randy was supposed to spend 30 years in Max. He wasn't supposed to be able to just be playing ball. No. He was supposed to sit there and think about what he did. Yeah, I mean, the man Alone. stood up and was like, we we play ball games with him. We have all these cookouts. And I wanted to hate him. I did, but I just couldn't. And so Patty just thought, well, he was supposed to spend 30 years on Max. He was supposed to sit there and think about what he did. And he never did. And that's what the state promised them. Yeah. 
And it just never happened. That was the plea deal. And then six years later, there they are sitting in a room with him, Mm -hmm. less than five feet away from him. Yep. Six years. Yep. And thankfully, Zane Duncan voted no to releasing Randy. Um, After the board member votes, then it goes to the rest of the board. And they vote. And usually that takes about 14 days to get a decision. Mm -hmm. But we've, um, Patty's heard from like news outlets and stuff that he was denied. So we don't have to worry about this for another four years. Till 2027. Yep. But then we'll be going back. If if he, unless he he dies. Yes. Hopefully he dies or somebody kills him. That'd be great. But if somebody killed him with your bra wires. (laughs) (laughs) That would be sweet justice. They're probably gone now. That'd be poetic. It would. <laughs> so, yeah, that's um, that's Mary's story and one that I wanted to tell for a long time. And I'm glad I got to. So um, thank you for going with me to the parole hearing. Of course. It was an experience I'll never forget. And we'll both be there in 2027. Yes, we will. Be. Unless he dies. Hopefully he dies. Yep. Hopes when he kills him. Like, yes. Brutally. I know. I know. He doesn't he doesn't deserve to see the light of day because Mary, no matter what he's done, what good he's done. It will always be something that Mary never got to do. Mm-hmm. And and really? No, he only he took Mary's life, but he also took Mitzi's. He took Mitzi's life. So yeah. when Mitzi was up there talking, she has never been married. She said that she'd had five boyfriends in her life. None of them ever worked out because she couldn't be with a man without being scared for her life. Mm-hmm. She it's affected never, her life. Yeah, in, she in never had kids. So. She's never lived on her own. Yeah. Like, sure, she is alive. But Mitzi just wakes up and exists. She says every time she closes her eyes, she sees his face. Yeah. And that's just terrifying. And she shouldn't have to go there every four years to see him. He took her life away Mm -hmm. also. Yeah. She's alive, but she's never gotten to live. And it's completely Mm -hmm. his fault. And Mary never got to see another day. Every time he's up for parole, there is usually a petition out. And like we posted it, you know, this past time. So in four years, you know, hopefully we're still doing this, but we will post it again. And we will update you all with any updates that we have. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. We'd like to thank Mikey Kinley for audio and editing, and our friend Avalyn Yulaberry for our cover art. Make sure to like and follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram is M three podcast and you can find us on facebook under the name of our podcast which is murder mayhem and merlot (laughs) 